Welcome back to Restore Gospel Podcast. We're friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. I have a special guest today, and I have been excited uh, this week to talk with him. He is author Jonathan Neville. Uh, Shane and I have been doing a series on restoration history, an honest look, and I came across this book of his called a man that can translate Joseph Smith and the Nephite interpreters. Um, I can pull it up here, but I'll just show you. We've, I've got my copy here, and I've got a copy on the Kindle. Uh, it was so good, I bought both. Um, fantastic resource. Anybody in the Restoration that, that loves the history, wants to defend um, what they believe to be true, this is a one for you. And we'll go through some of this. But Jonathan, introduce yourself. Our, where do you live? Well, I live in Oregon, on the coast in Oregon. Oh. I also have a house in Salt Lake, and it turns out I'm I'm in Salt Lake right now. I just got in last night. We're doing some family stuff. But uh, yeah, I spend most of my time in Oregon. We moved there from China. I don't know if I've told you that story, but no. we, uh, we were actually in China teaching for BYU at Nanjing Tech University when COVID hit. And so oh. we had to come home and we had some people staying in our house here. And so we ended up uh, buying a house in Oregon on the coast and moved there. And we, we've pretty much been there ever since. I bet that's beautiful. Yeah, it's pretty spectacular. We were out there a couple of years ago for the first time uh, for an anniversary trip. Absolutely loved it. That Cumberland River, boy, that is a beautiful place. Yeah. Yeah, we love it out there. I've been going there my whole life because my grandparents live there, so it's kind of home to me anyway. Gotcha. Well, I pulled up the Amazon uh, just to people know they can purchase this on Amazon and probably most places you get your books. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, well, do you have children married, she said? Yeah, my wife and I, we're empty nesters. You know, all of our kids are out and about. Some Two of them live in New Zealand, two live in, I guess, Four of them live here in Utah, and then there's a couple others in, other, in Seattle and New York. So we're all kind of spread around, but um, we don't have any pets. Gotcha. <laughs> and, so, and we just live in, we kind of live on a forested uh, hill. So we're, we're up on a hill surrounded by forests looking out at the ocean. So it's a pretty ideal situation. I've got my art studio there and uh, just having a great time. Do you, you do art? You paint or yeah. draw or paint? Yeah, I'm painting mainly. So you're an author. You've I've, I was looking. I mean, I, at least 15, 20 books. How many books have you written? Well, I, I've done a bunch of legal re- review type books, 30 or 40 of those. Over you're the a years. lawyer. A lawyer. Correct? Yeah. Well, I'm retired yeah. now, but I was. Yeah. OK. And that came about in, in law school. One of my professors asked me to help them do some editing and one thing led to another and they ended up having me write a bunch of these books. So I did, I did that for many years. And then I wrote a few novels and short stories. I actually won a, an award from uh, Sunstone magazine for one of my short stories many years ago. But anyway, I, I got into this um, issue of church history, mostly because I was writing a novel about native Americans reclaiming their land under the various treaties. And a friend of mine said I needed to meet Rod Meldrum. And I don't know how much of that background you want to go into, but it was um, 
very eye-opening for me to go on a tour with him and Wayne May in Ohio and see all these, uh, the mounds and the indications, the things in the museums that the Book of Mormon refers to. And when I asked him, well, why do we ever get in this Mesoamerican setting? And he said, it's because of these articles in the Times and Seasons. And so the first book I wrote was about those articles in the, the 1842 Times and Seasons. And then, you know, different questions would come up. People would ask me questions and I'd say, I never thought about that. And so I would research it and I ended up writing, I don't know, around 10 books on LDS church history. And um, well, the one you mentioned, A Man That Can Translate was one of the most recent ones. Yeah, how, um, so what started your, uh, what got you interested into the translation process? Well, a lot of it had to do with the idea the stone in the hat idea mm -hmm. that, you know, I, people were asking me about it a lot and I hadn't paid that much attention to it. And then I, I started, I read the, uh, for example, the gospel topics essay on Book of Mormon translation. I read uh, Royal Skousen's books on the Book of Mormon and I, some of the things on uh, Fair LDS and other authors writing about, and it, it looked to me like the, the scholarly world had kind of rejected the idea that Joseph Smith translated the plates. And instead, they they were kind of coalescing around this idea that all he did was read words that appeared on a stone and a hat, right? And Russell and Rowling was another one that I, that I read. Mm -hmm. And so I was curious about how this happened, how, why there's this transition. And so I started doing the research into it, reading the, the scholarly papers, and then also reading the original sources primarily. And one thing that really struck me was how um, the, the scholars, you know, it's hard to, to generalize. We don't have time to get into all the details of who said what. But, right. but generally, I'm just going to say the scholars, including the Gospel Topics essay, they just don't ever quote what Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery said. Instead, they quote what David Whitmer, Emma Smith, and Martin Harris, and a few others said about the translation. And when you look at it uh, from a normal historical analysis perspective, you usually take the earliest accounts first or have priority, especially when they're provided by the principles in the, in the events. And so I thought, well, I'm going to just start with the premise that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery told the truth. And then I'm, I want to reconcile that with all the other accounts. The way it's been done up to this point, uh, particularly there's a book called uh, From Darkness Unto Light by Michael McKay. Garrett Dirknat, and they, their way of uh, reconciling these is to say, well, when Joseph Smith said the Urim and Thummim, he really meant both the Nephite interpreters and the seer stone. And that's, that was a point that didn't really ring very true to me. And so that was another area that I embarked to research why they would say that and what sources did they use or omit. And one thing led to another, and you have the book. I mean, I, I'm happy to talk about any of those details you want, but that's what yeah. got me into it. Okay, other, yeah. One, one, ahead, one other thing I should just mention real quickly is really what prompted this was the number of people I'd heard from who had either questioned their faith or left the church over the stone and the hat stuff. And I thought, okay, that's, that's an area that needs to be discussed and right. analyzed. And based on my experience with Book of Mormon geography, where in my view, the intellectuals have totally, um, I guess, absconded with reality by ignoring early church history documentation and focusing instead on their own theories. 
based on that model, I thought, well, maybe the same thing's happened with the translation. And, and in my view, that is exactly what's happened. They've kind of rejected what Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery said in favor of their own theories. So what, what do you think the motivation is behind um, you know, basically the, the stone in the head idea? I mean, why, why wouldn't they just accept that, that we had the urine thumb for the purpose of translating? What would be the motivation? Well, a lot of it, I did, it's interesting you bring that up because I did a chronology study that I haven't published yet about how this kind of transitioned. The, the very first account of the translation was, as I recall, September of 1829 in the Palmyra newspapers. And they say, it, apparently it was attributed to Martin Harris, but it said that Joseph put the spectacles in a hat and read the words. And I thought, well, that right there, it doesn't make sense because no one was allowed to see the spectacles, the Urim and Thummim. So it had to be a hearsay account. In other words, Martin Harris wasn't present during this event at the Whitmer farm, but he assumed that Joseph put the spectacles in the hat. So right there, the, the very first account doesn't make sense. It contradicts what, what Joseph said. And so I, I was thinking, well, somewhere we got off on the wrong foot. And then the next one was in Mormonism Unveiled. In, in the book Mormonism Unveiled, that was 1834, they gave an account of the, the, what they called the peep stone in the hat. And they said, alternatively, some say that Joseph uh, used the Urim and Thummim. So there were two different concepts that Mormonism Unveiled talked about. And it was in response to that book and other critics similar to that, that Oliver Cowdery wrote those eight essays or letters. They were published as letters in The Messenger and Advocate. And the very first one, he said he was there when Joseph translated the record with the Nephite interpreters or the Urim and Thummim. And so he was explaining, he, he, he was really rejecting the whole stone on the hat thing right there in the first letter. And in the LDS, uh, uh, Pearl of Great Price, in the Joseph Smith history, that's a note now. Oliver Cowdery's letter is a note to the Joseph Smith history to clarify that that's how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. So what happened is that the LDS leaders, successors to Joseph Smith and his contemporaries, all said that Joseph translated the plates with the, the Urim and But the critics were saying it was the stone in the hat or the Solomon Spaulding. We'll get into that a little later probably. And it wasn't until the kind of the new Mormon history movement starting in roughly the 1970s where LDS church historians began revisiting all the original accounts, specifically including Mormonism unveiled. And they started to say, well, wait a minute, there's all these historical accounts that if we're gonna just use traditional historical analysis methods and not be apologetics, we ought to account for these and incorporate them somehow in uh, the narrative. And so there was an article written, I think in, in Dialogue magazine that explained all this. And then of course, Rough Stone Rolling came out, I think it was around 2005, where Richard Bushman explained the stone on the hat is basically a fact. And then this book, From Darkness Unto Light, elaborated on that even more. and came up with this theory that the term Urim and Thummim meant the seer stone and the Nephite interpreters. And from then on, it's been just, uh, you know, a tidal wave of stone in the hat stuff. That's, that's kind of how it came about. I, I don't think any of it was intended to destroy faith. I think they were trying to reconcile historical accounts. Jonathan, well, let me, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Let me bring up uh, just some common narratives that I've heard and that I've seen in history of various 
summaries. Uh, I guess number one, the the one I hold to the most uh, um, popular, or not popular, but the most. Uh, this is basically 100% use the Urim and Thummim for the entire translation. Right. Um, and then you've got a, a little lessening theory that after the 116 pages were were lost, um, that Joseph used the peepstone from then on. Um, mm -hmm. I've heard that the entire Book of Mormon was just a peepstone in the hat. You know, there were no interpreters. And then right. fourth, fourth, I've heard that at one point he didn't even need the plates in front of him, uh, that he was just using inspiration from God. Uh, why this is important to me is I, th I think the Book of Mormon is the most correct, direct revelation we have of who Jesus is. Um, yeah. Can, and that can word for hold this for a sec? Yeah. Just a sec. Sure. Are you having a party in here? Okay. I'm just doing an interview, so just, okay. <laughs> I, I just had someone come in, so go okay. ahead. Well, so it's important to me that that the, the idea that God created these interpreters for a reason um, and it was to do this kind of thing. I want to quote from your book here, if we can read this while you're walking, and um, and we'll let our. Sure. Uh, this is from your book. The term interpreters appears only four times in the 1830 Book of Mormon, three times in Mosiah, once in Ether. Mosiah explains these interpreters were doubtless prepared for the purpose of unfolding all such mysteries to the children of men. Ether relates the Lord's commandment to Moroni. He also hath commanded that I should seal up the interpretation thereof. Wherefore, I have sealed up the interpreters according to the commandment of the Lord. Moroni explained that the record could be read only with the interpreters based on what the Lord said to the brother of Jared. In Ether, and behold, when ye shall come unto me, ye shall write them and shall seal them up, that no one can interpret them. For ye shall write them in a language that they cannot read. And behold, these two stones will I give unto thee, and ye shall seal them up also with the things which ye shall write. For behold, the language which ye shall write I have confounded. Wherefore, I will cause in my own due time that these stones shall magnify to the eyes of men these things which ye shall write. And here's the, the key here. It says, we see that the Jaredite language could not be interpreted without these stones. Magnify here presumably means more than just merely enlarging the engravings like a magnifying glass. It connotes an expansion of understanding, conferring an ability to translate. That the stones would magnify to the eyes of men suggests multiple future translators, Mosiah, Moroni, and Joseph Smith. I don't know if all of that was in your book, uh, but I know that last part was the man that could translate by Neville. So I wonder, do you know... The fact that these interpreters, so let's let's talk about terminology. You have a, a peep stone, and do you hold to the fact that Joseph in his earlier life was using a peep stone, uh, you know, with the divining rods and peep stones were common? What do you know about that? Well, you know, I'll, I obviously I don't know anything other than what's in the sources, but I, sources tend to um, elaborate and expand and assume things. And again, in these eight letters that Oliver Cowdery wrote, he addressed this issue of the seer stones. And he said that he kind of ridiculed the idea that he admitted that Joseph had used them down in Pennsylvania. And as I recall, he said something like, and, and now people say he tore up all the hills in Pennsylvania, words to that effect. So he was explaining that Joseph's limited use of these things had been really 
expanded and exaggerated by the critics. And I think Oliver Cowdery probably knew more about what had happened than we do today. So, you know, it's, there's accounts in Mormonism Unveiled were mostly affidavits that were collected around the Palmyra area. And they were, uh, you know, they, they were questionable reliability. I tend to think that they were based on some facts, some, or at least some rumors based on facts. And so I, I would say Joseph definitely did have his uh, seer stone. And people thought that he was using it to find treasure, but he also said he never really found treasure with it. According to him and his mother, he tried to talk um, people out of uh, seeking for treasure like that. So I don't think his, his use of them was nearly as widespread as some of the critics say today. Do you think that, so you have this, the peep stone and then you have the seer stone or interpreters or Urim and Thummim, and these three words kind of seem to maybe not always be used accurately or substituted one for the other, but the Old Testament, Urim and Thummim, uh, is not the same device that we're talking about when we talk about Joseph, or is it? Right. No, no, it's not. In fact, right. I, I don't know if you saw my book on uh, Jonathan Edwards, but Jonathan Edwards discussed the meaning of Urim and Thummim. And he said, yeah, there was a device. It was basically the two stones that the Jewish priest would would throw down for yes or no answers. But he said the idea of a Urim and Thummim means any device that you can use to communicate with God. So it was, in his view, the term meant more than just the, what the uh, Old Testament describes. And that's how I see Joseph Smith describing it. I have a paper I haven't published yet about where did the first use of the Urim and Thummim originate in the latter days. You know, for a long time, everybody thought it was William Phelps that came up with it because of his 1833 article. But then someone discovered that article in the Boston newspaper from 1832, where Orson, as I recall, it was Orson, um, not Orson Pratt, Orson Hyde and uh, Joseph's brother had used that, described the interpreters as a Urim and Thummim in response to some questions from a, a minister out in Boston. And that was in 1832. So we know that some of the early revelations were later modified to insert the term Urim and Thummim. And some people think that was a retroactive application. Another interpretation that I'm arguing for is that when Moroni came, he, he referred to them as Urim and Thummim, as Joseph indicated in the, in the Wentworth letter. But that he didn't, the early revelations one of the reasons they modified them is because when they were first received, everybody knew what they were referring to. But in subsequent uh, years, and people who joined the church later didn't know what that was referring to. So they went back in and said, okay, it was talking about the Urim and Thummim. And so at least that's what I'm arguing in this paper that will come out pretty soon. So well, I have kind of... Good. I, I have kind of a, a, I don't know, it's a theory, not as educated as yours, but I, I feel like maybe the, the stone in the hat is a, a way to hold Joseph on a higher pedestal than maybe God intended for him to be. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, the, the translators were given and it was kind of a simple, you either get it right or you get it wrong. You know, you look in, you write and you say it out loud and write it down and that's it. Um, and that way it's it, the, that way it was accurate. Um, the stone in the hat is kind of a different principle. And, and I feel like, you know, because we, I grew up hearing about the stone in the hat as well. Um, I heard that he used the Urim and Thummim first, then he kind of started using the stone in the hat. And then the next thing you know, 
he's walking around the the cabin you know, <laughs> just under the pat under the influence of the spirit just flat out dictating every word but using nothing and it, it almost seemed like it was like you know he was he grew spiritually and he was such on this spiritual high that he could just he was just directly communing right from god and didn't need any devices and uh you know and i just accepted that because it was a narrative that i had heard but more the more i study the more i really believe that he solely used the the translators and that maybe this was an effort to try to hold him up on sort of a you know nearly level of christ rather than just a man that god used you know? interesting point yeah i hadn't thought of that one i was um wondering if the fact that because sometimes the the interpreters were referred to as stones or stones set in rims or bows that as as accounts got passed from person to person this stone uh could have been referring to the urim and thummim but instead changed to peep stone that word stone seems like it could easily be you know misinterpreted from person to person what do you do you know anything about that or how yeah about well that's true the the key thing is one time Joseph Smith gave his rule for interpreting scriptures and he said he wants to know what was the question that prompted the answer in the scriptures, if you remember that. And so I thought, well, what, what was it that prompted Joseph Smith to make such a big deal about how he was commanded not to show the Yerman Thummim or the plates? He said, he said he was going to be destroyed if he displayed those. And he repeated that more than once. And I, I wonder, well, why did he have to do that? And I think one of the reasons he did was to uh, let people know that whatever other witnesses were saying, they were not seeing the Urim and Thummim. So that's one way to avoid this confusion about the stone being one thing or the other. So any, any witness who said they saw Joseph Smith put a stone in the hat was not observing the Urim and Thummim. By definition, Joseph said that only those you know, presumably Oliver Cowdery saw it when he tried to translate. That's another topic. But until the the three witnesses had their experience, no one else saw the Urim and Thummim. And so anyone who said they they saw the stone in the hat was, was not observing the Urim and Thummim. And from my perspective, that means that they, whatever Joseph was doing with the stone in the hat, it was not the translation. And that's what led me to this demonstration hypothesis that I talked about in the book. Yeah, why don't you tell us about the, and I wanted to let you know at the end, I want to just, I've got your appendix pulled up on the Kindle and kind of go through how you laid out sources from firsthand to secondhand and, and how you show okay. who said it. And that was really, really neat. But yeah, tell me about the demonstration hypothesis. Yeah, so for me to reconcile the counts, well, let me, let me start off by saying what my first premise was. I, I alluded to it earlier, but in the Elder's Journal, I think it was 1838, and in the Wentworth letter, Joseph Smith made a very specific point. He said, I, with the plates came the, the interpreters or the Urim and Thummim. And by means of the Urim and Thummim, I translated the Book of Mormon. There's no room in there at all for a seer stone, particularly a seer stone that he was not in the, with the plates. So, and he reiterated that well, actually three times because they republished the Wentworth letter with some edits in 1844. So that was as clear of a statement as we can get from actually Joseph Smith, you know, who, who would know better than anybody else. And then also Oliver Cowdery reiterated it a couple of times. And so based on that, where Joseph and Oliver both unequivocally said, Joseph translated the Book of Mormon using the Urim and Thummim that came with the plagues. 
you have to reconcile that with what David Whitmer, Emma, Martin, all the rest of them said about the seer stone, right? And so, as I mentioned earlier, one way to reconcile it is to say, well, Joseph and Oliver were kind of misleading people. That's what Royal Skousen is saying now. And that they really used the seer stone, but it's, it was kind of considered a cult, so they tried to tie it into the Urim and Thummim. That's one approach. The other approach is to say that uh, when Joseph said he used the Urim and Thummim that came with the plates, he was hedging a little bit there because he was actually using the seer stone. That's, those are two different nuances. What I th started doing was going through all the original sources, once again, just with a fresh mind. What I noticed was David Whitmer gave this account of people gathered around a table downstairs in the Whitmer home while Joseph put his face in the hat and dictated words. And so I thought, okay, that's one specific account. David also said he was not around for most of the translation, but he did describe this one event. And when I considered that, I looked at, at the details of that event and Emma being presumably one of the scribes present at that, on that occasion, all the accounts could have derived from that demonstration, what I call the demonstration. People who were present, nobody said what Joseph was dictating on this occasion. They just said he was translating the Book of Mormon. But nobody said he was writing Alma, you know, chapter five or, or whatever. So there's really no way to tie a specific part of today's text to that demonstration event. So that's how I reconciled it. And when I, when I realized that the way witnesses operate, they tend to mix their personal observations with their assumptions and inferences, as well as with hearsay they hear from someone else. A good example of that is um, Joseph's brother, William, who was never present, as far as we know, to, for the translation. And yet he provided details about the translation that he had to have heard from someone else. And so it's, it's very difficult to tease out a, a direct observation from an assumption or an inference or some, someone what they heard from someone else because witnesses will say things that they believe as if they're facts and even that that's what modern historians are doing if you read rough stone rolling uh richard bushman wrote about the uh, stone in the hat as if it was a fact he didn't say well so-and-so said this and so-and-so said that he he just made it as a declarative statement that it was a fact and so it's a common human thing that as, as lawyers, we have to deal with every time we interview a witness, you know, because you, it, you have to just have witnesses distinguish between what they actually saw and what they think they saw or what they inferred or what someone told them. I picked so up that you, your background in law is was helpful, at least in the way this was written. And this is really, really laid out in a way that the common man can look at this and it makes sense to them. I really appreciate the benefit of that. Well, I hope so, because it's it's out of the normal experience for most people to, to realize how witnesses testify. And, you know, as, as I went back through all of David Whitmer's statements, you know, I have that book, David Whitmer Interviews. It's out of print now, but I have a copy of it. And you read through that, and sometimes he's just contradicting himself. And people would say, even published in um, the uh, Saints Herald sometimes, they would say, well, David Whitmer told me this, and now he's saying that specifically about the Urim and Thummim. One guy said, no, he told me that Joseph used the Urim and Thummim. And then David Whitmer came, comes back and says, well, I never really said that. And so people hear things differently. Reporters record things. There was a famous account, I think I put it in the book, 
where David Whitmer was complaining about an article that was published of an interview that he did because the reporter made all these errors. And, and that's been my experience whenever I've had um, done newspaper interviews, I read the article and I'm like, that, that isn't what I said, that's not what I meant, you know? And well, I, I have a lot of critics who put words in my mouth and stuff, that, that's just part of it. That's a really, I, I keyed in on that in your book because he, he was hesitant to do this, one of the last interviews with a newspaper man, because he said, look, people misquote me and change things all the time. And so this guy was actually a friendly person and gave him his word. I will put in there exactly what you tell me. And yeah. sure enough, the paper came out and there were some distinct <laughs> changes. But David wrote to the paper and published his letter to the editor and said, I don't think he was trying to be malicious or didn't intend to do this, but here is what I said and here's what he reported. So even when both people were on the same page, having the same goal and there was no, like, I'm going to bash this Mormon and make it out to be yeah. bad. Yeah. It was still messed up. Well, and, and they do it even today in the media, you know, they'll take a clip out of a video out of context and show the clip and everybody's aghast. Like, how could that happen? And when you see it in the full context, it makes more sense. It's not mm -hmm. outlandish. And back then, of course, they didn't have recording equipment. And so anytime, and you know this, if, if we were doing this interview and you were taking notes, you would emphasize, Mike would emphasize something, Shane would emphasize something else. Someone reading your two notes later would think you were in two different interviews. And, and that's right. the nature of, of how these witnesses operate. So when I was reading, <laughs> there, Emma's account is, a, is really a, a fantastic example of this. I don't know if you want to get into that one. Sure. But, Sure. But even David Whitmer's accounts, you know, that you can't really reconcile everything he said. And that's because he drew from different parts of his memory. He was influenced by other people. What other people said, they were trying to keep their story consistent because of the Spalding theory. I mean, there's so much more to it than just reading a document and saying, well, this is what happened. One thing before we get to Emma real quick on David Whitmer, one thing I thought was neat that you pointed out was even though he may say, Joseph was looking in a hat and was reading the words and then, you know, and he said they would appear until they were correct. And leave. he was still making the point that Joseph wasn't walking around the room translate, you know, being inspired by his own mind or the spirit and then giving these mm -hmm. words that he was trying to make the point that this happened by the power of God one word yeah. at a time. So whether he got the instrument wrong based on everything or reported wrong, that was the main point, and you brought that out, that the theme around the conversation and what was his intention of sharing this is important. <laughs> I, a few more people just came in, which is fine. You're going swimming anyway. Um, yeah, and well, it's not only that. It's, it's interesting that um, David Whitmer, in my view, as you know from reading the book, was really acting as an apologist more than anything else. He mm. was not, he, he admitted he wasn't around for most of the translation and that took the place upstairs. So he was just trying to do his best to, um, I don't know, I guess justify what he was trying to promote in terms of Joseph being inspired. And he thought the best way to portray that was the way he was portraying it. But he wasn't uh, acting as a specific reporter about what he actually saw. In, because, and, and I say that because one example you gave was the word for word thing, mm -hmm. where he would say every word was correct. And if it wasn't correct, 
the, the stone would not display more words, right? Yeah. But when you look at the original manuscript, that's not accurate at all because there's lots of misspellings in there. There's some corrections. Later on, Joseph Smith went back and made hundreds or thousands of corrections, depending on how you look at it. So that's that to me is evidence that Joseph was a translator, not just dictating words that appeared on a stone. But for David Whitmer, it was more important. I guess we haven't talked about the Solomon Spalding element of this. It was more important for him to defeat the Solomon Spalding theory than anything else. And we've we've kind of forgotten about that historical context because in our day we think the Spalding thing has been completely debunked. You know, after the discovery right. of the Spalding papers in Hawaii, but in the 1800s, that was the the predominant theory of the or explanation of the Book of Mormon, and it was published in the East Coast Media. Uh, I think I mentioned in the book there were several books, anti-Mormon books, published based on the Spalding theory, and so they had to prioritize. They could say, well, Joseph actually was translating upstairs and nobody saw what he was doing because it was behind a curtain. But that just fueled the fire of the Spalding theory. And, and they, so they couldn't do that. And so instead they resorted to the stone on the hat thing thinking it was going to re, um, refute the Spalding theory. But it caused its own separate problem. Its own problem. And looking back now, yeah, we any number of books, few of the Hebrews or anything. But back then, they they were really, yeah, that was a key thing at the day. Well, the the name, the book, Mormonism Unveiled. The reason they have that name is they want to know what was behind the veil because everybody knew Joseph was dictating from behind the veil. And that's why when you um, when we read what David Whitmer and Emma in particular said about all this. It was always after addressing the Spalding theory. They would okay. say, well, yeah, and so the Spalding theory required Joseph to be dictating from behind a curtain, right? And Mormonism Unveiled was all about trying to see what was behind the curtain, what was Joseph reading from. And their argument was that it was a Spalding manuscript instead of the plates. That's in, that. That's a keynote, really. I think underlying everything is the context of why they were even giving their account. You know, what led to that? What were they trying to defend? That's a good point there. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Emma. Why don't you talk about uh, what you were going to say about Emma's account? Yeah. Okay. So she had essentially there were two uh, items of evidence from her. One was her letter that she wrote to the friend of hers. And that letter was quite interesting. Let me move back out here a minute. Sure. So the, some of the key players as you're moving, Emma Smith, Oliver Cowdery, Joseph Smith, uh, reliable kind of accounts. Lucy Max Smith, I think, was another good, reliable one. We'll, we'll look at some of these here later. Um, yeah, I'm going to go else? out here for a sec. <laughs> okay. I think we may have lost these. Looks like the pool's available. Okay. <laughs> Sorry for this confusion, but. No, you're okay. I, yeah, it's all because I had to use my clubhouse. Um, well, Emma's, Emma had the letter that she wrote to her friend first, and then she had the last testimony of Emma Smith. Those are the two main sources from her. And so the, the letter that she wrote to her friend is very revealing because the friend, we don't have the copy of the letter that the friend wrote. We only have Emma's response. But Emma, in the letter, said, well, she couldn't really remember what was in the times and seasons. And she couldn't remember who baptized her. I mean, things like, like this that are 
make you wonder how much she could remember. Right. But she, in the letter is the one where she said that Joseph used the Urim and Thummim for the first part, and after that he used the seer stone. And everybody assumes that means that he was using the Urim and Thummim until he lost, until Martin Harris lost 116 pages, and after that he had the seer stone. That's kind of what David Whitmer said also. Mm-hmm. But it, it doesn't really fit with the other evidence. For example, when Lucy Mack Smith went to visit Joseph Smith after he rec- received the uh, plates back, he told her that he had received the Urim and Thummim back also and that he was translating with Emma. And then he also, later on, before they left Harmony, Lucy said that he applied the Urim and Thummim to his eyes to look on the plates. So, And that's consistent with Joseph, what Joseph said, that he used the Urim and Thummim, right? That was after the 116 pages were lost. So Emma's story doesn't make sense unless one key point. And that was that she never saw how he did it because he was behind the curtain of the screen. And she didn't say that because if she did, that would give fuel to the Solomon Spalding theory. Yeah. Okay. So when I read what Emma's letter said, it sounds like it's this apologetic idea that she was kind of going along with what she and David Whitmer had uh, essentially decided to say based on the demonstration let me ask you a question because you just brought something to my mind and i don't know where i read this maybe in your book was there actually a blanket between the plates and the scribe or was it a blanket so that nobody like to cut off the room in the doorway so that nobody walking by would see it but that the uh, scribe and joseph were face to face where they could see that he wasn't using anything is that correct or did i well it's it's not clear because the, the david wimmer said they had pulled a curtain over the windows in the house so people couldn't look in and see what i call the demonstration but there were people sitting all around the table from both families mm. and so it, but he was using a stone and the hat at that point so he didn't need a curtain to hide David even said the plates were on the table under a cloth, or at least I should say the reporter said that David said. We don't know if David actually said that, but mm-hmm. but that was one curtain, and that's got confused because Martin Harris said there was a curtain between him and Joseph, so he couldn't see the plates, and he couldn't see the Yerma Thummim either. Was that before uh, he had his experience as one of the witnesses? I'm sorry, say that again? Was that before he had one of his experiences as the witness? Yeah, yeah, that was when they were doing the 116 pages. Martin Harris said there was a curtain there, and that was reported in one of the newspapers that he gave an interview to. Well, and Emma Emma said she never saw the plates either. So when when she was helping interpret, she didn't see them. Yeah, Emma said she never saw the plates. She felt them under a cloth one time, and she would move them to dust and so on. But she never saw him. And so it's interesting when you when you read someone's statement, you have to try to detach yourself from your preconceptions going into it. And it's very difficult to do because we all have an image of of Emma kind of puttering around the house and Joseph and Oliver out there with the stone on the hat, because that's what's been portrayed in the media lately and, and in artwork. But that isn't exactly what she said. She didn't specify that I was in our little cottage in Harmony and Joseph and Oliver were at the table and Joseph put his face in it. She never said anything like that. Every, I, I don't, I'm unaware of any account where Oliver and Joseph were sitting at a table with just a stone in the hat between them. Because 
I know uh, Oliver's future wife was a teenager in the, in the up in Fayette. She was David Whitmer's sister, and she gave an account that's a little ambiguous as well. But you know, it's, it's frustrating to me because I wasn't there to cross-examine these witnesses. <laughs> there's they're so vague. And so they're susceptible to a variety of interpretations, what I like to call multiple working hypotheses, right? Mm-hmm. And when, when you read it from the standpoint, when you start with what Joseph and Oliver said, that he translated with the entire Book of Mormon with the Urim and Thummim, and you consider how David Whitmer described this demonstration in the, in the farmhouse, you can see how the stone on the hat accounts all derive from the demonstration. And then you know that what Joseph and Oliver said is still accurate. I, well, I, I just, I, I might be kind of coming back to what I said before, but I, I think it's important for people to realize that Joe Smith and Oliver Cowdery never varied from what they said, and they were very specific about it. And so whatever Joseph did with the stone and the hat, it was not the translation of the Book of Mormon. Yeah, definition. yeah, it's interesting that it's interesting that both uh, both sides of this maintain. I mean, it's really it's got details that fit both. So they both involve a stone because the the Lerum and Dome were two stones. Um, I would think it probably in, both involve a hat. Um, I could see I could easily see Joseph putting the hat around his eyes so that he could get a better you know clearer picture of what he's looking at as he looks into the Lerum and Dome, uh, blocking outside light. Um, so I don't, I don't see that. I mean, they're, they're very similar. You know, I think the key is, is focusing on the fact that God gave the interpreters for the purpose of this, this work and not some mystical, you know, outside thing. Well, that's, yeah. That's, you know, this, that brings up a point I wanted to make, unless you have something else, Mike, you want to say first? No, I was gonna, I was gonna go towards just some philosophical questions uh, regarding what did God say? Because we sometimes we hold up what men say in their accounts and want that to be more proof than <laughs> the scriptures. Yeah. And, and when you read the Doctrine and Covenants, it's pretty explicit that he was told to translate the engravings on the plates. And it, it talks about the Urim and Thummim as well. Of course, like I said earlier, some of those revelations in the modern Doctrine and Covenants were changed from the Book of Commandments and the earlier ones to insert the Urim and Thummim. And that's where the critics will say, well, Joseph just used the, the same term for the stone and the Nephite interpreters. Where I'm saying, no, Moroni identified these interpreters as the Urim and Thummim. All Which along. means, those words mean, I think, uh, we talked about this before, but light and what, do you know what the actual words stand for? I don't want to say it wrong. Yeah. Oh, lights and um, truth. I about I that for truth. A while. It's truth, isn't it? Essentially, something like that. Yeah. I mean, I could look it up here, but I. Well, let me ask a philosophical question. Just to, okay. getting back to the scriptures, and then we'll wherever you want to go after yeah. that, we will. Um, okay. So, I was. I said, if Joseph Smith, this is just going back to the Word of God. If he translated the Book of Mormon uh, by not needing to look at the plates then why all the work in Mormon and Moroni transcribing and hiding them up and preserving them if they weren't going to be used in translation? In other words, Joseph could have sat with a stone in a room and God could have just gave him the whole story right. firsthand. So why? Because that was tedious, right? That's a... Yeah, yeah. Um, if Joseph just made the plates himself, why would he use commandments from God to not show them to anybody? If he was trying to pull off a hoax... Wouldn't he want to show them to everyone to have them examine them and make his story more legitimate? Good point. 
I mean, the whole time people are, well, he doesn't have anything under there or it's just a rock or a, or a pile of tin, you know, but, uh, mm -hmm. um, and then kind of the same lines. Why would the interpreters be placed with the record if they weren't needed to be used? Why would God have made them way back with a brother of Jared and told them people in the future would use them? Couldn't he have just given Joseph a stone in the first place? The same question carries over right from the interpretation of the Urim and Thummim why he right. would continue with the stone if he'd started with the interpreters. And then this one, Shane and I just put out a book of Abraham thing this week, but uh, what about the book of Abraham? Why not use the peep stone for that? If that was his given mode of, of translation, because of course he didn't have the Urim and Thummim then. So that was just some philosophical questions. I think that go above and beyond who said what uh, to some common sense about what God said. Well, I think your first point here is pretty crucial because the whole narrative of the Nephites having to record these plates and abridging them and, you know, putting them in this in the stone box and all that, that indicates that the plates were, were not just some kind of uh, metaphysical touchstone or something, but they were really what was going to be translated. And it, it, this relates to the whole idea of the two sets of plates. I don't know if you've seen my book about whatever happened to the golden plates. <laughs> I've, I've just, no, just as the first book, but I, I will be adding some okay. more to my library. Okay. Well, let me, I'll summarize it real quickly. If you look at the title page of the Book of Mormon, which Joseph Smith said was the last leaf of the plates, remember? He said it was a literal translation of the last leaf of the plates. So he had a stack of plates. Title page was the last leaf. It, apparently, there's other ancient documents where they put like their table of contents as the last thing in the book. We always put it at the first in that modern mm -hmm. times. Anciently, they put it at the end. And the table of contents or the title page tells us what's in the plates. And it says there's a record of an abridged record of the Nephites and a bridge record of the Jaredites. And then Mormon added or Moroni added his little bit at the end. There's nothing in there about any original plates of Nephi. It's, it's not even alluded to or suggested. So that tells me that in the, the plates that Moroni put in the stone box did not include the, the plates of Nephi. Joseph took those abridged plates to Harmony. He translated all of them. He started with the Book of Lehi. Those got lost. They went all the way through the end to the title page. And then he and Oliver considered going back and retranslating the plates of, of Lehi, the record of Lehi. And that's when the Lord said, no, don't do that. That's in DNC 10. The Lord says, don't retranslate that. Instead, you have to translate the plates of Nephi, the engravings on the plates of Nephi. The key point is he didn't have the plates of Nephi at that point in harmony. He had to get those later. And so when he when he finished the bridge plates in harmony, he gave those to a divine messenger who took those plates to Cumorah, the repository at Cumorah, where he picked up the plates of Nephi and took those to Fayette. And that's why Joseph translated the plates of Nephi in Fayette. So they're two completely different sets of plates. Mm -hmm. And when you understand that, that's a reaffirmation of why the plates were so important. Because he was actually translating the engravings on the plates. They weren't just, uh, you know, there, there's a couple of theories that they were just used to inspire Joseph or to right. have proximity, you know, to for revelation or something. No, that's not what the scriptures say. It's not what Joseph Smith said. So he actually yeah. needed the plates. Imagine that. Yeah, yeah. he actually <laughs> translated them, you know. And <laughs> it's, it's so amazing to me that Joseph couldn't have been any clearer than he was. He said, I translated the plates. 
And he's, he even said in that preface in the 1830 edition, he says, um, the first part of this, someone stole, it was a record of, um, it was a record that I took from the plates of, I, I can't remember now, but it was, he took them from the plates, he said. He didn't take it from a stone. He took, he took the translation from the plates. The other thing that I like to point out, and this is what led me to inquire into the Jonathan Edwards stuff, I, I just said, okay, if Joseph translated the plates, then the Book of Mormon has to be in his own syntax, his own language. And I, I'd seen an article or two about how the language and terminology in the Book of Mormon is far more sophisticated than Joseph, who was illiterate and didn't know anything. So that's evidence that it was all divine, came from the stone, right? And then you have royal scouts and saying it's all early modern English that Joseph couldn't have done. Therefore, it had to come from the stone. And, and so I said, all right, I'm going to set aside all the King James language and look at all the non-biblical languages in the Book of Mormon. Can you hear me okay? There's some traffic out here. Yeah, your, your, your video froze up, but keep talking. I think it'll catch up. Okay, it's just I, there is some traffic out here, so I don't want that to uh, cause a problem. But I'll sit over here maybe a little further away from the traffic. I think maybe your okay, Wi-Fi so doesn't get as good a service out there. It's kind of, but that's okay. Keep talking. Your voice is Yeah, clear. if it back in, I, those people might be gone now. But anyway, so I looked at the non-biblical language in the Book of Mormon. And I, I to see where Joseph could have acquired all this language and terminology and even some of the concepts. And that's what led me eventually to looking at the books that were on sale in the Palmyra Bookstore, which included the eight works, eight volumes of Jonathan Edwards and that's what led to that whole book. But to me, that's all evidence that Joseph actually did translate. And that's why he felt free to go back in subsequent editions and make changes and corrections. Because as the translator, he knew what the original said. Going back through it, he realized, well, I didn't really express it as well as I should have. I'm going to change it here and here and here. A, a lot of that had to do with um, changing the pronouns mm -hmm. and, you know, but still, there were some substantive things, too. And I think as a translator, he went back in and just like any author, I've, I've gone back through and rewritten parts of my books to make them more clear, you know, as I get input from people. And, and a translator can only translate the best he can the first time through, even under inspiration. But it was still his translation. And so when he went back through and made all those changes, to me, that's more evidence that he translated it. I think Very it's good. awesome. Yeah. So if like, I guess for me, I, I've always taken it, you know, like David, what David Whitmer said, as far as he looked in and saw the actual words to write and, and that, you know, that he couldn't write if they wrote it wrong, yeah. he would lose it. And uh, yeah. but I guess I, I guess my thinking is, is, and I see what you're saying. I guess my thoughts are, if he looked into them, what was he seeing then? You know, if he wasn't seeing well, the words to write, then, I mean, was he just given general ideas and he expressed them, re-expressed re them in English? Or, I mean, I, I'm not following okay. how. Yeah. Well, let's start with what David Whitmer said, because what David Whitmer said was necessarily hearsay, right? He didn't, mm -hmm. David Whitmer never looked in there. Right. He didn't even say, Joseph Smith specifically told me this. He just made these statements of fact as if he, he knew it from personal experience, but he didn't. Plus, of course, he made those statements decades after the fact. So when I see that, I, I see him refuting Solomon Spaulding again right there. 
So I, I don't give really any credence to what David Whitmer said about what Joseph saw in the app. But plus, mm -hmm. as I mentioned, the manuscript and Joseph's subsequent edits contradict that idea anyway. I mean, think about it. If, if Joseph Smith was really only dictating the words specifically that showed up on the stone in the hat, how could he possibly go back and change those words later? I mean, right. he would be changing the word, the direct word of God. You know, he, he can't do that. So what was At he least, seeing then, I guess? I guess that's well, my question. What was he seeing? Yeah, what was, what was the Urim Thumb doing? Mm -hmm. Well, he told us the first thing he did was he copied the characters and translated them with by means of the Urim and Thummim. And so that tells me he was learning the language, basically, because he, he would copy a character off, use the Urim and Thummim. And the only really guidance we have on that is in, in LDS DNC 9, where the Lord told Oliver Cowdery, you know, to study it out in your mind and all that. I guess maybe that's not 9, but 9 is where the Lord said you tried, but you couldn't do it. But, you know, in those early revelations, the Lord told Oliver Cowdery that he couldn't just ask for it. He had to study it out in his mind and then ask if it was right or not. That tells me there's a kind of a, an interaction, a, a deliberative effort to do a translation. And what I see happening is there, there's a similar analogy to the, uh, in the Rosetta Stone. I don't know if you've ever looked at the detailed translations on the Rosetta Stone, but they will have the words in the three languages Greek and then the two Egyptian languages. And one word has multiple connotations. And so you have to kind of take the word and think of, well, could it mean this or could it mean that? And it, it, just like in English, there's lots of words that have multiple meanings. And when you combine more than one word, then you expand the possibilities. And so anytime you're translating something, you have to choose among, a, a, again, multiple working hypotheses. You have to choose among alternatives. And I think that's what the study it out in your mind is. And then you get a confirmation. So if I'm, I've done translation before, and when I, when I come across something in an original language, I think, how do I express this in English? And you have to kind of think it through and you come up with two or three alternatives. Sometimes you write them out. Other times you just say, well, I'm going to do this one. And that's what I see happening in with Joseph Smith too. He would say, okay, this word, the Urim and Thummim says it means this. And so how do I articulate that? In other words, I see the Urim thumbing as giving him a literal translation, but he had to transfer that into something that people would understand that would make sense in English. How does um, jo uh, Emma's account of um, him spelling, spelling things wrong or him asking questions to her, like I, th I think she said at one time, she said, yeah. Did Jerusalem really have walls around it? Yeah. Okay. That's that's a good example. Because yeah. David Whitmer said that too. It became kind of an apocryphal story. And I looked into that once and I looked in the Bible and I it's hard to tell if there were walls around Jerusalem at 600 uh, BC. Mm. At least as I read it, you know. And because they built walls after that for sure. But it's hard to say if they were there at 600 BC. So whether Joseph didn't know there were walls around Jerusalem at all, or whether he didn't know there were walls at Jerusalem in 600 BC is, is an interesting question. I tend to think, because he was fairly, very familiar with the Bible, he would have known that Jerusalem had walls around it. It's just did they have walls around in 600 BC. And so the other one, what was the other one he said about Emma? 
Oh, the, uh, spelling the words. Mm -hmm. Well, who knows? I mean, whether he saw them spelled out in English, whether he kind of had a, a spiritual intuition of what the word was in, in order to articulate it, it's hard to say. But the, Ross Gazin pointed out there's lots of multiple variant spellings in the original text. So certainly not all of the words were spelled word for word. Here's an interesting, um, Corey is a, a friend of mine that we do the audio podcast together, but he's got restoredgospel.com. It's one of the most uh, first scripture search. He's a computer programmer and did this over 20 years ago just for his own study. But he's kind of done a lot of Hebrew recently, found some really neat things in the Book of Mormon that Joseph wouldn't, wouldn't have known at the time. And even with the Hebrew language at the time, wasn't known until people started really discovering the language once again. Um, and one of them is like you take this word uh, uh, faith. Uh -huh. The Book of Mormon correctly translates the word faith uh, because of their firmness and their steadiness in the faith. And if you go to that Hebrew word for faith, firmness and steadiness. And there's many um, words like this in the Book of Mormon that you wouldn't find in the Bible or in other descriptions that Joseph seemed or that God seemed to be giving Joseph a real um, clear picture of, you know, what the Hebrews were actually saying. Uh, there's this one on mercy. This is really neat. I want to show you this, Jonathan, uh, and then we'll get back to your um, says in Psalms, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. But the English word merciful does not fully express the original Hebrew meaning of merciful. It means to have compassion literally to cradle in one's arms to protect. Uh, and so when we look at the Book of Mormon, Second uh, Nephi, for example, and I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love, mercy. And there's uh, several of those in the Book of Mormon where Joseph, uh, and thus mercy can satisfy the demands of justice and encircles them in the arms of safety. Uh, so, uh, that's another neat thing to me that it seems like God was actually giving him what the what the original meanings were in plain English that weren't uh, even knowledgeable at the time. And now we're seeing that that was actually the most uh, correct, uh, maybe the incorrect interpretation of those words. So I don't know if you've seen any of that before, but there's there's we're literally finding tens and twenties and thirties of these. Well, to me, that that's a perfect example of how the Book of Ether describes the Urim and Thummim, because it, it, it expanded. What, what was the term, it enlarged? To magnify, yeah. Well, you said to magnify their understanding. Magnify, yeah. yeah. To magnify into the eyes. And that's a perfect example of that, because the, the if, you, if you take the example you gave from the Old Testament, that the term the King James translators used didn't really encompass the entire original concept. But with the Yerma Thumb, Joseph was able to magnify that and expand the meaning. That's a that's a perfect example of that. So whether there was actually uh, letter by letter or um, praying about it, getting the concept, it seems like he was putting down, and there's ample proof, the actual best English interpretation of what Hebrew would have meant, even as opposed to some of the King James interpretations, you know, that have gone through yeah. tra translation. Yeah, exactly. Well, bottom line is, I think Joseph translated it. And so he, whether he um, 
I, I don't think he just saw the words and dictated them because that wouldn't be a translation, right? But he did see the, the characters. He learned the characters. He would see the words get the literal meaning and then have to articulate that in a way that makes sense to us. So, for, and that's why, as I, I don't want to repeat myself too much, but that's why he made changes later. It, it, the other thing that comes up is several times in the Book of Mormon it says, or in other words, right? Right. And, and, and there's been a debate about whether that was Mormon who said it in other words because he couldn't cross them out on the plates. Right. To me, that's, that's exactly what a translator does. He says something, and then he says, or in other words, this. And in, in one, one or two cases, it's a correction. Of, of what was previously said. And that's what a translator does too. He'll, he'll translate something and says, oh, no, it should say this, basically, or in other words, this. And that phrase, or in other words, is also found in the Doctrine and Covenants. Hmm. So it, it indicates it's a way that Joseph Smith was trying to relate what he was either translating or receiving by revelation in the case of the Doctrine and Covenants. And he he couldn't find the exact word, so he said it a couple different ways. He said it this way, or in other words, this way. So I guess uh, I guess my my take on on this is I, I kind of lean towards more of the idea that he was given the actual words, and perhaps he shouldn't have gone back in and made <laughs> corrections and alterations, and you know yeah. added added stuff to it, added ideas to it, because it seems like you know he did that for multiple years afterwards and uh, added whole phrases and things, and you know I. I feel like if if God gave it, God gave him the interpreters and it was through divine revelation, you know, letting time go by and coming back in and altering it seems like seems like that would be letting his human thoughts come in rather than just the you know divine thoughts. Um, I speak Spanish, you know, and so I, I very well understand that how one word can mean five different things in English, right. you know, and so I get that, but when he was looking at those interpreters, he wasn't being taught how to read Hebrew. He, he was, you know, he was giving a given a revelation as to what to write. If he understood Hebrew and understood that it, all those multiple meanings, then then yeah, I could see that he could use his own ideas to, to make it clearer, you know. But it's just kind of my take on well, it. Well, th this gets back to something I was going to talk about earlier, and you wanted me to come back to it. Okay. And that is, I, I, as a very senior uh, LDS leader told me not too long ago that it doesn't matter how the Book of Mormon was produced because the words themselves are evidence of its divine origin. That was his thing. And, and I, my reaction to that was, well, it doesn't matter to you, maybe. It doesn't matter to me in a, in a sense. It doesn't matter to any of us because we, we believe it, we accept it. But it seems like it, the stone in the hat is, a, is problematic for people because the, the, if the objective is to get people to read the Book of Mormon so the Spirit can come into their lives, what's the biggest impediment to reading the Book of Mormon? The, and to me, it's the idea that it didn't come from God. And, and the best way that antagonists have to say the Book of Mormon didn't come from God is the stone in the hat. Because even if Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon, that could be more of a uh, divine origin than using an occult seer stone, right? And so it's, it's hard to imagine a bigger impediment for Christians or in the world in general to accept the Book of Mormon than to say it came from a seer stone. That's right. Well, well, I think this is probably the most important topic for me in the restoration religion yeah. because 
I've seen churches depart from the teachings of the doctrine or the Book of Mormon, uh, LDS, RLDS, Community of Christ. Uh, and so I hang my hat on this book because the book itself says we have to be careful with the Bible because things have entered into the Bible that are, um, I, I think there's things in Doctrine and Covenants that are, are just completely not found in other places in Scripture. And I'm, we're not here to debate that, but I will say the Book of Mormon is what, is the basis of my foundation not that it's not the book but who how jesus christ is revealed in that book right. so if anybody tries to if you're going to take somebody's faith away if the book of mormon crumbles because of proof of some weird way it came about other than the, the yeah. divine power of god then my then everything crumbles after that i mean yeah. even to me the existence of god because what do i trust a, a like Absolutely. the bible right that's yeah and I make the analogy, okay, I think the earliest New Testament manuscripts we have are from like 200 A.D. or so, something like that. Yeah. So the, the reason the New Testament works is because it's considered a historical document. But there could have been, if, if someone had thought of this back in 200 A.D. and said, the whole New Testament came from some guy reading off a seer stone, <laughs> then there would be no basis for Christianity. Because Correct. it would it would detach it from history. And and your first point on your list of points there about the why, why I have the plates, mm -hmm. the seer stone, the stone in the hat idea removes the Book of Mormon from history because it, it says it has nothing to do with the plates. We don't even need the plates. And then it just becomes a kind of a mystical experience that kind of like the Quran, you know, mm -hmm. Muhammad goes in and gets all these words and writes them down. There was no ancient source or anything to go along with it. And that's that's kind of the Quranic explanation is the stone on the hat. And I think, you know, when you, again, getting back to this idea of why did Joseph make such a big point about saying that he translated the Book of Mormon by means of the Urim and Thummim that came with the plates. He didn't have to get that specific, but he did multiple times. And I think it was because he recognized that the potential damage that this stone and hat narrative would cause. And we see the evidence of that all around us all the time. Yeah. And well, I want to oh, go ahead, Shane. You just made me think of something else that I think is really important too, about, about the interpreters is that they, you know, by having the stone in the hat, we're basically interjecting a human element into the a miraculous process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the interpreters were prepared for the brother of Jared by God, if, yeah. I, if I remember that correctly. So these were a supernatural, holy relic that God had created himself for us mm -hmm. to use, you know, and, and so Ether, I mean, um, uh, brother Jared had them and all the way down, you know, Moroni, I, I think Moroni or Norma would have had to have used them, right, to to interpret uh, the book of Ether. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, let, so let it was me, written. Yeah, go ahead. Let me let me just briefly. I haven't put this in the books, but my idea of the Urim and Thummim is just like the the stones that God touched to emanate light for the people of Jer or the Jaredites across the ocean. I think God could imbue those stones with a portion of His intelligence, and that's that is what made them translators. They could translate any language, and they could they could uh, allow Joseph Smith to see things right, both in distance and in time because God put a portion of intelligence, kind of one way, I don't know how metaphysical we want to get, but they, he could confer or organize 
those stones to have some innate intelligence that would interact with Joseph's mind as well. And that's, well, how I, that's why I see them as being exceptional and special to the point where they had to be protected and accompany the plates and all that. Whereas this stone, and you know, Joseph had multiple seer stones, according to reports. They were just rocks that he found. And the one that the LDS church put it on display, you know, and published the, the brown stone that Joseph gave to Oliver Cowdery. And, and you know, it's funny because along those lines, reportedly when he gave it to Oliver Cowdery, he said, I don't need this anymore. And so that's one of the reasons people say, well, he must have used it for the translation. And I look at it to say, well, he didn't have to do any more demonstrations. Right. So. You know, and with the, the idea of the stone having actual power from God, I mean, he touched the stones that gave light, you know, not right. plugged into a wall outlet or anything for right. this journey. So there was something of the power of God within those stones that they generated their own energy and light. And it's kind of a neat, I think, connection to the fact that as you look through them, you also see light and truth. Uh, not that they're the same. Maybe they were. I don't know. I, I haven't. Well, let me mention one other paper I'm doing, and that is what does it mean to say the gift and power of God? And what I'm pointing out in this little article I'm doing is the gift was the stones themselves, the Urman Thummim. The power was the power that was emanating through them that Joseph interacted with. So it was, he said, the gift and power. They're two different things. Sometimes we just conflate them or say they both mean the same. I think they were two different things. Mm -hmm. And that's why I don't buy the this seer stone as a gift of God or having the power of God in it. Jonathan, I promised you about an hour and we're over an hour, but I really want to get to some of the appendix in your book to kind of give people a flavor for what it means to look at sources and what people are saying in the context of how things can be taken. Are, are you okay. still up to sure. doing that a little bit? Yeah. And no, then there's I'll, nobody in here right now, so I'm good. <laughs> all right. And then I'll give you plenty. I've, I've got plenty of time, but I don't, I know, I know you said it's kind of hot where you're at, so we don't want you to fall yeah. out here. <laughs> all right. So here's the Appendix 1 table of translations. Um, I wanted to point out one thing. You talk about certain uh, phrases being passed on and they appear in multiple people's accounts, such as mm -hmm. day after day or exclude the light. And so I'm going to go to this first. Uh, so note the dates, 1870, 1883, 1887, right? So 40 plus years after Joseph was killed or around there. Um, mm -hmm. Here's Elizabeth Ann Whitmer. Now, she was never around when when they were being translated or didn't view anything. But it yeah, says well, she was. She, she was there. She was a teenager, a young oh, okay. sister of David Whitmer's. But the problem here, I don't know if you're going to get to that, is this statement is attributed to her, but it came to us through William McClellan. Okay. So it's not an original document at all. All right. So, yes. Okay. Sorry. You do say that underneath here. Um, the report was, uh, I was familiar with the manner Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon. He would place the director in the hat and then place his face in the hat so as to exclude the light. Uh, and then we see an account by William Smith. Is this actually him or? Uh, yeah, that was. For okay. Okay. The manner in which, sorry, this was done was by placing the hat to exclude the light. So there's that phrase again. And then you have David Whitmer and his address to all believers, maybe 1887. 
Yeah. I will now give you a description of the manner. He would put the seer stone into a hat, put his face into the hat, and exclude the light. So you see that, speak to that common language. What, what's your point about that? Well, my point there is these witnesses were building on one another's statements. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, anytime there's a, an investigation, a criminal investigation, the first thing that the police want to do is separate the witnesses. <laughs> because if they put them all in the same jail cell before they interview them, they're all going to have exactly the same story. And people always do that. They try to say, okay, let's remember this happened and that happened. And they try to keep their stories consistent. And that's what you see here. These are people who are either uh, relying on a common source or have are familiar with what the previous one said. So they're using the same language. William Smith in particular is a good example because it, like I said earlier, as far as we know, he was never present either mm -hmm. in Harmony or Fayette. So anything he said, he had to get from someone else. Okay. Uh, as far as David's statement, you know, you can see the, the similarities there. And <laughs> it's, this is all funny to me. It's, it's sort of like when they, they talk about how the, um, the different theoretical manuscripts that the Gospels are based on. When they say, well, there had to be an earlier manuscript because this language is similar to Mark. They, they say Mark was the first and then the others were derivative of Mark. And, and a lot of that has to do with um, finding similarities like this, where you say, well, the subsequent manuscript has the same terminology or the same account as an earlier manuscript, therefore it's derivative. And that's what this is. That's what this shows me. Well, let's move on to uh, this. Here's another one. I like, so you got if you buy the book, this is a great thing in the back just to quickly get to uh, quotes that we've often heard. Here's, you tell the source, Lucy Mack Smith, who she is, where you can go to find this. Uh, Joseph Smith papers is, is very reliable. Um, needed nothing more than a Urim and Thummim by which the angel manifested those things to him that were shown him in vision by which he could also at any time ascertain the approach of danger. What do you think about that? Well, that, that gets back to how the idea that the Urim and Thummim wasn't only used for translating, but for revealing uh, circumstances and events past, present, and future. And which is the nature of a seer, you know, who has the Urim and Thummim. Mm -hmm. And so what she's giving there is an example. It was also when, um, I don't know if this is the same one, when Emma came to tell Joseph that the plates were being threatened because someone was going to find him. And he said he, he was at work and he said, well, I looked at the Urim and Thummim and they're okay. So the Urim and Thummim gave him that seeric uh, capability, but it didn't always do what he wanted. For example, when the 116 pages were lost, he said he used every effort he could, which I assume means he also used the Urim and Thummim, but he still couldn't find them. So it, even though it was the gift and power of God, he was still limited in what he could use it for. That's, uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Here's a great quote from Joseph himself. He said, Martin Harris returned again to my house about the 12th of April, 1828, and commenced writing for me while I translated from the plates, which were continued until the 14th of June, following by which time we had written 116 pages of the manuscript on paper. Sometime after Martin Harris had begun to write for me, we began to tease me to give him liberty to carry the writings home and show them and desired of me that I would inquire of the Lord through the Urim and Thummim if he might not do so. 
I did inquire, and the answer was, he must not. In the meantime, Martin Harris was gone with the writings. I went to visit my family's father at, Man at Manchester. I continued there for a short season and returned to my place in Pennsylvania. Immediately after my return home, I was walking out a little distance when, behold, the former heavenly messenger appeared and handed to me the Urim and Thummim again, for it had been taken from me in consequence of my having wearied the Lord and asking for the privilege of letting Martin Harris take the writings, which he lost by transgression. Um, so there's there's that thing about after the 116 yeah. pages that he, he continued on with the uh, uh, Peepstone, but this is this is Joseph Smith's account himself, and what he said that he got him back. Yeah, and see, this is an example of why I think David Whitmer was relying a lot on his own assumptions, because the only thing he ever saw was Joseph putting the stone in the hat, and so he had to assume that Joseph didn't have the Urim and Thummim at that point. Right. I just find it. I just find it weird that people wouldn't have asked like to give them details. Like it almost seems like they're, they're sort of just, like you said, making these assumptions, but I would have been curious. I would have been like, what do they look like? What do they feel like? What, how do you, how does it work? You know, I, I would have wanted to know all the details. Maybe that's just me, but. Oh, know. me too. I mean, this idea of, well, let me give you an example uh, the priesthood restoration site in harmony. Mm -hmm. My wife and I went out there and it, we were there the day before it officially opened. And so and it was blocked off and everything But we said, well, we can't come back. So I just drove around the barricade and acted like we belong there, you know. And we went on the very first tour. The missionaries were giving of the site to the local branch members there in, in the Harmony area. And so we joined the tour and we went in and they have the display in the in the little cabin there that Joseph and Emma had of the the plates under a cloth. And then they have the, uh, the hat there. <laughs> And, and a sample of the manuscript. And of course, the first thing I did was lift up the cloth to see what was under there. And I saw how they had the plate set up. Well, I since talked with um, some senior missionaries that served out there. And I said, yeah, what did you think of the way they showed the plates under the cloth? And they said, what? And I said, yeah, underneath that cloth, they have the plates. We were told never to uncover those plates. <laughs> and I thought, how could you be a missionary out there and not pick up that cloth? I mean, come on. Right. But they didn't. And I, I guess, you know, some people are afraid of asking a question or, you know, they just they're happy with what their assumptions are. It's inexplicable to me. I mean, I can't even imagine Emma feeling those plates and not looking at them. Yeah, that's a testament to her great uh, her great faith or, or, or self-control. I don't know. To be able to, to move them around and clean around them yeah. and never, never actually look. It's. That's amazing. But I mean, there's not all those accounts that I have at the end of this book in the appendix. There's not a single one of those that I wouldn't have wanted to cross-examine that witness. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's got to be. Well, so Shade and I did an episode on seer, what it actually, what a seer actually was, and then even the choice seer. But I wanted to read this quote to you. Um, let me share my screen back here, because this kind of talks about a revelation being given. Um, mm -hmm. Joseph Smith, the prophet, it says, uh, moved upon, aspire, three witnesses. The prophet inquired of the Lord, and this revelation was given in answer through the Urim and Thummim. What, uh, so you see, I know, do you know the exact number of revelations Joseph actually had, or are some of these assumed that any revelation up until the time 
the Book of Mormon was complete and the interpreters were taken back, were all through the interpreters or or is it just you know, we don't know okay. there's no way to tell for example this dnc uh 17 here mm -hmm. it's not in the book of commandments as i recall and so it's in the, the 1835 doctrine and covenants but by then the term urim and thummim was added to um i guess i don't have it in front of me now i guess section 10 but the so we don't know what the original version of dnc 17 said mm -hmm. we only First, earliest version we have is the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants. And this, it was dated, when was the NC-17? From 1829, right? Yeah. Gee. So there was six years in there where some of this might have been changed. We don't know. But not all the, only a handful of the early revelations refer to the Urim and Thummim. Right. The other, one other point, since you're bringing this up, there's some later accounts where people would ask Joseph for a revelation and he would start dictating one and they, they would say, no, we want you to use the seer stone. And I, I think Hiram in particular did that once. Interesting. And, and, and that is fascinating to me because that's another example of Joseph having to use the seer stone for the faith of the people, but not because he needed to use it. Can you imagine going to a prophet of the Lord and saying, uh, no, I don't want you to prophesy. I want you to use a Ouija board. Yeah, exactly. I know. Yeah. Right. That, that was that was the context that it was in, and it's it's well, it's always hard for us to put ourselves in their place, of course. But I wanted to, um, without going through everything here, I want just sum up. Um, you can go through here really quickly and see methods, spectacles, gift of power, of God, Urim and Thummim, and then you can see who they were. Uh, a lot of these are Joseph. Um, you get into Emma and Oliver, the three witnesses, David Whitmer, Emma Smith. Um, and there's, so here's one. You also go into ones that say something opposite. Here's Emma's quote about, uh, I always feel a peculiar satisfaction in giving all the information on the subject I can. Now, the first that my husband translated was translated by the use of the Urim and Thummim. And that was the part that Martin Harris lost. After that, he used a small stone, not exactly black, but was rather in dark color. I cannot tell. Now, what is the source on this? So that's Dan Vogel. No, that's that letter. That's the letter I mentioned earlier. Okay. So, so Emma Pilgrim had written to, to Emma and asked her some questions. Mm -hmm. And if you read the whole letter, you can see that she couldn't remember a lot of details. But we don't know what, what Emma Pilgrim asked. In that letter but we also know we had the first-hand account of joseph that absolutely contradicts this and yeah. says the angel gave me back the interpreter so right. this is just but this is one that enemies of the church will latch on to and without knowing how much first-hand accounts there are from joseph and oliver then this becomes truth and pretty soon it just quotes people quote people and, and this is the new narrative yeah yeah well and that's that's why, as I mentioned, that a lot of the LDS intellectuals now say that Joseph and Oliver were misleading everybody. Sure. And, yeah. You know, here it is. This letter is 40, more than 40 years after the fact. And she's trying to remember back, but she couldn't even remember who baptized her. She couldn't remember what the times and seasons said about these things. So... That's too convenient. That, that goes back to the polygamy thing that Joseph was just lying for God, telling people he didn't practice polygamy. 
and deceiving yeah. everybody rather than taking their words at face value, which just seems dishonest with no integrity in a lot of ways, I think. Well, it's, you know, everybody likes to uh, cherry pick, right? Mm -hmm. so that's why it's so funny to me that the Gospel Topics essay doesn't even quote what Joseph and Oliver said. If they did, then you couldn't come up with the stone on the hat stuff. Right. Well, Jonathan, sum up. I'll give you just a little bit. Sum up for me. So the basic is there is a lot of firsthand accounts of Joseph using the Urim and Thummim for the entire Book of Mormon. And there's right. a lot of secondhand, thirdhand accounts. And then there's the fact that why are they saying what they're saying? Are they defending him making up a book from the Spalding letter and whether it's a stone or interpreters, the thing is he was using, you know, the power yeah. of God. That's uh, a good point. We, we didn't really discuss the Spalding thing, which is so key to understanding. If you have it, time, you're more than welcome to. Yeah, but I could do it for a few minutes. I've got about five minutes. Okay. Um, yeah, because in, again, as we, as I mentioned that 1834 book, Mormonism unveiled said that what was behind the curtain or the screen or the veil was a manuscript by Solomon Spaulding. Spaulding was a guy who lived in Ohio, had written a, a manuscript, a novel, let's say, about the origin of the mounds in Ohio. And he had sent it off to Philadelphia for publication, and it became lost. And so the, the theory was that uh, Sidney Rigdon had also been at that same office in Philadelphia, had stolen the manuscript, had added a bunch of Christian sermons to it and gave it to Joseph Smith so Joseph Smith could read it as the Book of Mormon from behind the curtain. That, that was the allegation in Mormonism unveiled. And so when Oliver Cowdery wrote these eight essays on church history, the very first one, he said, these are days never to be forgotten. As I you know, sat there and wrote the, the Book of Mormon as Joseph translated with the Urim and Thummim. So he was refuting the Spalding thing. The other thing he did in uh, letter number seven, he, he described, he talked quite a bit about the Hill Cumorah in New York. And he said it was a fact that it was in this valley west of the Hill Cumorah that the Jaredites and Nephites were, had their final battles. And he talked about the numbers of people who were killed there and so on, because that was to refute the idea that it was a fiction. He, he talked about the factual location of where these events took place. And so when, um, nevertheless, Spalding's theory kind of took off because people, the, the ministers and so on who were fighting against the Book of Mormon found it a convenient explanation. And it was about a year or so later that uh, Joseph Smith wrote a letter to the church, fairly long letter, and he addressed this book that Mormonism unveiled and said it was full of lies and so on. So it was still becoming a, an impediment for the missionaries to deal with the Spalding theory. And then I think it was in 1840 or so, something like that, several more books were published expounding on the Spalding theory. And, and as I mentioned, that became the predominant accepted explanation for the Book of Mormon. And so uh, Emma in 1870 and David Whitmer and uh, the others, were they were asked about it, about the Spalding theory, and they refuted it. They said, no, Joseph had nothing to read from. He was right there in front of me, you know, all these uh, explanations that refuted the Spalding theory. But then in, I, I don't remember when, what the date was, but the guy, Edie Howe, who had published the Mormonism Unveiled, sold his printing press. The guy bought it, took it to Hawaii. He was going through the papers and he found this manuscript by Solomon Spalding. And so 
the, the, the idea was that the manuscript that they found in Hawaii was the one that the Spalding theory was based upon. And when you read it, it doesn't really correlate to the Book of Mormon at all. Mm. So it, it couldn't have been the one that uh, Sidney Rigdon, according to the theory, had. So that refuted the whole Spalding theory pretty much for, uh, for everybody, even Fawn Brody. In her book, No Man Knows My History, accepted the, that the Spalding theory was bogus based on the discovery in Hawaii. So in our day, it's been put to bed a long time ago. Yeah. That's why we forget the context of what David and all and Emma and Martin Harris were saying in response to the Spalding theory. And, and once, you, once you understand that context and you understand the demonstration, then you can go through all of their accounts and see why they were saying what they were saying. And they had a factual basis for it because of the demonstration. But they took it too far to say that's how the Book of Mormon was produced. Mm -hmm. And it, But the bottom line is, if you just stick with what Joseph and Oliver said and what the scriptures say, the revelations and the Doctrine and Covenants, as well as the entire narrative of, of the Book of Mormon about the importance of these plates, the, the um, stone and the hat theory, which I call Sith for an acronym, Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't hold up, and there's no need to to try to cram this the Sith theory into Joseph's narrative. Instead, you have to say, well, the Sith theory was had a purpose. It was an apologetic purpose at the time that is no longer even relevant today. And the last thing we should be doing is relying on what David and Emma said decades after the fact and rejecting what Joseph and Oliver said contemporaneously. Hmm. That's that's pretty. So Mormonism unveiled. That's that was a group of writings for people that were disembodied from the church or disenfranchised. That were kind of enemies to the church, right? Collected up affidavits and things. Yeah, yeah. They went. There, there's a lot of. Uh, there's an. It's like an appendix. Maybe they're short chapters mm -hmm. of um, a bunch of affidavits from Palmyra, people living in Palmyra. And there's a few letters and correspondence and so on that they put in there to, to and, and it's funny because even in Mormonism Unveiled, they don't have a one specific theory because they talk about the stone and the hat. They say other people say Joseph used the Urim and Thummim, but they rely mostly on the Spalding theory. Gotcha. And they make an interesting point there too. They say, well, if Joseph didn't even use the plates, if he just used the stone and the hat, then what's the point of having the three witnesses and the eight witnesses seeing the plates? Right. Because if he wasn't using the plates, those, <laughs> those plates don't add anything. Mm -hmm. The only reason the, the statement of the witnesses is important is because Joseph said he translated those plates. All right. Yeah. yeah. Well, Sh Shane, you have any last questions or thoughts for? Um, no, I appreciate uh, you coming on and uh, really good information and I appreciate your books. So. As yeah, sorry the, about all the disruptions walking around here, but maybe that adds a little flavor to the whole thing. <laughs> I like it. This is people are used to this kind of stuff on YouTube anymore. So yeah, it's, it's okay. just real and it's real time, but the audio quality has remained really strong and for yeah. the most part the video. But I wanted to say as I was reading your book, I thought I've got to start making a spreadsheet and just putting out who has sources firsthand. And then I came across the appendix. I'm like, oh bless his heart. He just saved me <laughs> years of, of time and stuff. So People go by uh, the man that could translate, a man that can translate Joseph Smith, the Nephi Interpreters by Jonathan Neville. And it's a good resource to have, especially if people come to you and start bringing up that Joseph used a peepstone to write the Book yeah. of Mormon. 
Thank you, Jonathan, for being here. Any last words or things you wanted to? Well, no, thanks. Thanks for all you're doing. And um, read up a little bit on the two sets of plates thing. It's pretty awesome. I'll check out some of your stuff. Would you ever be willing to come back if we we come across a thing that you would be relevant for and help out? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I love talking about this. And I, I love having different ideas about all of it because, you know, there's none of us were there at the time. We can only mm-hmm. rely on these sources, but we have to make sense of the sources. And, and, and like Shane said, the word of God is what should prevail over whatever people said. Are you and, LDS still in the church? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, okay. I'm LDS. Okay. Yeah. We've had people. I've actually... Have- uh, I'm a pathway missionary. I teach Institute, you know, I'm pretty much all in. Okay. But I'm not all in with the scholars. <laughs> if I had to sustain the scholars, it would be a different question. Cause I, I think they're too full of themselves to, to go back and humbly accept what Joseph Smith said. So. Well, that's an honest look. I, I find when we look at the book of Mormon, which actually started the restoration before there was any church, this great movement of God for a purpose that, we all have a lot of common ground and it's when we get off into man-made activities that our, our paths diverge. So I love uh, talking about it. It's, it's my favorite thing. Yeah, me too. Very cool. Well, it's been a pleasure to meet you guys. Yeah, you too. Hopefully we can do this again and I'll have a more quiet setting. (laughs) I kind of liked it. (laughs) Okay. All right. right. You have a good Saturday, sir. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.